Hello, and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Camuso Miller. I'm a public affairs professional in Washington, D.C., and I interview members of the media about their background, about how they got into journalism, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter is a PR Daily podcast. Check out PR Daily for ideas, inspiration, and trends on all things public affairs and to find the Friday Reporter podcast. Well, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter podcast. This week, we have David Wildstein with us, who, if you're not familiar with David's background, he is the editor and founder of the New Jersey Globe, uh, which is a must read, gotta stop in, gotta see it every day if you care at all about New Jersey politics. He is also the host of uh, the Globe Power Hour on Saturday mornings on 77 WABC. David, it is a super treat to have you today. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. So, David, uh, for those people who aren't familiar with your background, I, uh, I, I'm going to brag on sort of some of the stuff you've done, and then we can talk about how, how in the world you got into it in the first place. But long ago, long before, when we were both children, really, uh, there was, for political animals and people that were consuming everything that was going on inside New Jersey, there was Politics NJ. And that was a, it was a, it was the newsletter before there was a newsletter, really sort of way ahead of the fact that there was ever a Politico or there was ever a, you know, these news aggregation spots. This was a go-to destination for, for anything political. Uh, and, and that's sort of how I became familiar with you. But Tell me, for those people who don't know how that product all sort of came together, talk to me a little bit about your background and how you came to produce that product and how you've gotten to where you are today. Sure. I mean, I started out like, like a lot of people. I was, uh, I was a teenage politics nerd, and I, I worked on campaigns, and I, and I worked on, on the staff of a state senator and, and uh, went to college in Washington where I spent more time on the on the hill than, than in class, which Mm -hmm. disappointed my parents. But, (laughs) but I, I just love politics. And, and after a while, you know, as, you know, as, as, uh, as I, I left, uh, campaigns and got what, what my father finally believed was a real job. Uh, he never really thought that, 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 that being, uh, uh, a campaign operative and, and, ha- and being unemployed every November was a, was a great way to live I'm, your I'm life. I'm so, so glad to hear you say that because I have suffered a similar sort of reputation inside of my yeah. family as well. <laughs> yeah. And people, people don't understand it. They don't understand that that, that was just the life that we chose and it was great and I loved it. But, uh, but I was, uh, I, I was in the textile business mm-hmm. and, and I said, wow, a lot of inside political news isn't getting covered. And this was uh, when, I, when, I, when I first had the idea, it was late 1999. And there was, there was this new thing called the Internet, and it mm-hmm. was just getting started. And, uh, and I said, well, what if somebody actually did news on the Internet? This was a time when daily newspapers updated their websites around nine o'clock every morning with all the stories that had been in the morning paper that day. Mm -hmm. And they weren't updating over the course of the day. So the entire day was free and clear to break news before the papers came out. Uh, I tried, I tried it on the internet. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know if it was going to, if I was going to do it for two weeks or whatever. It, it, 
it caught on, uh, and this was early 2000. And then mm-hmm. eventually, eventually I stepped it up. I, 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 I got incredibly lucky. I was advertising for a reporter. It was the, I decided, let me have a, a reporter who's in New Jersey, who's, who's covering news every day while I was doing my day job. And, uh, and, and one of the applicants just blew me away. It was a, a 22 year old, uh, recent college graduate looking for his first job that was steve kornacki and and so steve kornacki comes to new jersey Mm -hmm. uh uh, he didn't know anybody he didn't know anything about new jersey now you know now i'll put him up against anybody on the planet when it comes to jersey stuff absolutely So, so that helped build the site that helped really make it successful and uh uh and i i had the i had again some good luck in that in that Politics NJ in those days was was sort of on an upward trajectory at the same time the daily newspaper started to go into a decline. Mm-hmm. So so it all worked. And uh, for those people who aren't familiar, we're also working under a surname too. So it really wasn't David Wildstein on the page. It was the name of a former, uh, is, am I right, legislator from New Jersey or was he a governor? It was Wally a, Edge. Yes. It was a former, it was a former governor. That's Walter right. Edge was a governor and a U.S. senator and a, and, 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 and before he was governor and U.S. Senator, and Lisa, you'll know this because you're from Jersey, he held higher office. He was the Senate president mm-hmm. uh, and, and also a newspaper publisher down in Atlantic County. But, oh, interesting. but I did it. I did it under a pseudonym. I know. And, and again, never. Nev- and, and that, I think that I think that added to the intrigue of what you were doing, too, of course, because everyone was trying to figure out who was behind this like incredibly well-sourced product that you were putting out hourly minutes you know when things were happening they were popping up it was you had to check it all day there was no facebook at the time at least not for kids like us so we were checking it all the time what's happening on the on the site this day very very cool stuff and it was cutting edge and i'm sure that it bugged the crap out of those regular journalists that were in the state house as well yeah it did it did but uh it was it was a a a good opportunity to keep political insiders informed about what was happening. No question. And so now today, New Jersey Globe, talk to me a little bit about, about what you're doing there and how that's going and, and, and how, you know, just sort of what that looks like now, now that we're sort of 20 years um, past the, the start of, uh, of your original product. Well, well first of all, it is, it is monumentally more difficult today than it was 20 years ago because now there's competition on breaking news. Now, now where I could have taken a couple hours to work on a story and, and, and beaten everybody by a day. Now you have to work very fast. You have to, you you, you have to compete with people that are also breaking news uh, online. I actually like that. I actually like the pressure of that. But Mm -hmm. we, uh, we, we, you know, again, you know, Built on this same model, we've got uh, a reporter uh, who's on the ground all the time, uh, Joey Fox, mm-hmm. uh, recent recent college graduate, loves politics. I think he could be the next Steve Kornacki. And, you know, the business side of this always needs to be separate from editorial. It was, I did this with Politics NJ from the beginning. There was, there's always a firewall on 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 advertising, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so we have... We have Kevin Sanders, who is the best, and he is—he uh, uh, runs the business and the revenue side of it. Oh, that's so great! 
it's true though. Like the whole marketplace in New Jersey has really changed even from the time that I've, and I've been in Washington now 20 years. Um, it's amazing to me how different the landscape looks in terms of the, the, the shift in regional papers, the shift in the, just in terms of all of journalism. Talk to me a little bit about that shift and that change and, and, and how that's what that looks like now. Well, you know, New Jersey, New Jersey's always been at a, at a disadvantage from the media standpoint, because there, there is no, uh, uh, state, uh, network television, mm-hmm. uh, half the state, half the state piggybacks on New York and the other half off Philadelphia. So it had always put uh, a greater burden on print newspapers. I, I think over the last 20 years, uh, the number of reporters is down about a third over the last six years. Print circulation is down in, 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 in some cases uh, uh, coming close to 80 percent down. Uh, I think you probably remember 20 years ago, there were there were 18 or 19 daily newspapers in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's all shot. It's all been condensed. You know, Gannett bought some and Advance bought some. Now, now you have two newspaper chains that own every paper but two. Yeah. And 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 they just they just don't do a great job covering local news anymore. And, and, and you know, I mean, I, you know, look, I get it. I get it that media is not uh, 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 an altruistic nonprofit type of operation. They've mm-hmm. they've they've got to make money. That's their job. And and look, if I mean, if 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 reporting on on hamburgers and French fries and proms and where to get the best bagel if that's what keeps the lights on in their company, they're free to do it. I wish, though, Lisa, that they would they would just say, you know, we can't do what we used to do. The media has changed. We're not as good as we used to be. So we're going to concentrate only on certain areas and at least be transparent with their readers. I mean, you know, I, I would love, you know, as much as I love politics, I'd love to cover the New York Yankees. Mm-hmm. But I can't cover, but I can't cover the Yankees and politics and do them both well. Right. And, and I think I think some of these newspapers they're trying to do, they're trying to do too much. But they've got a third of the number of people. They don't have the reach that they used to, yeah. and and they're just sort of skating by. And and uh, and I'll tell you, I I I checked on something in advance of, of speaking to you. Uh, uh, when you ran a campaign for the state assembly in Monmouth County mm-hmm. 22 years ago, yeah. it was 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, th- I stopped counting at 60 stories in the Asbury Park Press on the race that you were running. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year in the same district, in the 11th district, total number of pre-election stories on that race was one. The Asbury Park Press only wrote one story. No kidding. And and here's a race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's here's a race where where the state senator went to bed on election night down, where two incumbent assembly members lost their seats, mm-hmm. and 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 the hometown newspaper wrote exactly one story on that wow. campaign. Wow. You know, so, so so how is that good for democracy? How is you know yet yet these. These newspapers, unfortunately, I mean, it saddens me too, because just just like a lot of other people, I started out. I mean, I you know I had a paper route, and, and when I was in high school, I was I was a sports correspondent for the Star Ledger and the Daily Record. I used to cover high school sports for them. Oh, that's uh, cool. But 
But you look at these, you, you look at the newspapers now, and, and if they don't cover campaigns, then, then don't, run, don't run your one story, your overview of the race with, with a clickbait headline of here's everything you need to know about election day. Yes. Because they're not covering it and they're not getting into the detail of it. And that's that's one of the things the New Jersey Globe is trying to do is is say, all right, we're 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 hopefully people think that we're good at politics and we're covering campaigns and elections and government. But we're not we're not going so far off that that we're losing sight of our mission. And David, do you think because that model and that that construct is what we're seeing in, in every state across the country? that there is just this dramatic change in terms of bigger ownership, less coverage. How do you think, do you think at all that has something to do with the polarization at all in the country? It feels like people are getting more information, but maybe not necessarily, well, for lack of a better way to put it, they're not getting uh, well-sourced or well-researched information sometimes. And it feels like that's just contributing to a false narrative that's happening in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think one of the greatest problems that I see is that reporters have become opinion givers. Mm. And, and, and I'm not saying it's necessarily a bias in the reporting as much as a bias in the, the presentation of their reporting. It's, it's, it's the way they attract readers on social media by, by, by putting their opinion into it. And, and I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone. I, I, am, I am sick of hearing reporters' opinions on issues. And, mm-hmm. and you know, that's one of the things I try to do at The Globe is, is, and, and is, is keep opinion out of it. And, and, you know, one of the things, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but one of the things that I wear as a badge of honor from the old politics and J days when I was writing anonymously is people didn't know if I was a Democrat or a Republican. They couldn't tell mm-hmm. by what I was writing. That's right. And and I think that's important. And I think that's, you know, I think that's important today, especially mm-hmm. is that readers shouldn't see that. And, you know, I, uh, and it, it, this doesn't make me right or wrong. It's just, it's just, it's you know, my opinion. Yeah. It's just one, yeah, it's just, it's just one person's opinion. But, but I, I covered the governor's race, and I said it on on, on the WABC radio, you know, a bunch of times. Uh, I've gotten to know Phil Murphy well. I've gotten to know Jack Chitterelli well. Uh, they are both good, decent men. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just had very different views on how the state of New Jersey ought to be governed. So, so I viewed my job in this election as presenting their viewpoints and, and what I think was respecting my readers enough that they could hear both sides. And then their job was to determine which one of the two best represented where they wanted New Jersey to go. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'd like to see a little bit more of that. What do you make of the closeness of that race, David? Do you, do you attribute that to anything? Or, I mean, because in Washington, they love to just call New Jersey a blue state. You and I have known it to be lots of different colors. It's been lots of different ways. Um, is there anything that you, at least, I mean, it's only been a couple of weeks, so maybe we're not, maybe the autopsy isn't complete there. But do you have some sense of why it was so close? Well, you know, one thing people forget about New Jersey is, I mean, it is a blue state. There's a million more 
Democrats in New Jersey that are uh, than Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but at the same time, uh, Democrats had not reelected a governor in 44 years. And mm-hmm. so since the last time a Democratic governor of New Jersey won a second term, Republicans have elected and reelected a governor three times. Mm-hmm. There, there's almost a there had almost been a preference for Republican governors. And you, look, you see that you see the same thing in Massachusetts with Charlie Baker mm-hmm. in Maryland with Larry Hogan, blue states, uh, they blue state voters still want to have a, a check and balance. And, and one of the things, Lisa, I, I said a lot over the last couple of years. Now, I'm not so sure that I'm going to say it anymore, is that New Jersey has always had a vibrant two party system. I just wasn't sure if the Republicans were one of those two parties. Uh, <laughs> the Democrats have this, they've got this huge tent and, mm-hmm. and they, they had spent the last couple of years fighting with each other. I mean, anecdotally, and this is, this, this, sure. this is just a, a story I heard a couple of times during this campaign where, where uh, building trades, blue collar labor unions are doing their labor walks for Governor Murphy and they're going around door to door and putting the door hangers vote for Phil Murphy. But the people hanging, uh, going out doing the canvassing, were going to vote for Jack Chitterelli. So just because somebody is registered, and I think that's one of the lessons in New Jersey this year. Uh, one of many is is just because somebody is registered as a Democrat doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote as a Democrat. And this and this election was it was a lot of things. It was uh, uh, Joe Biden, uh, you know, and there's there's a lot of history there, which which you know that that the last five times uh, a new president uh, took office, the president's party lost the governorship in New Jersey. That's right. So so there's a, there's some history to that. By I think Biden cost Murphy a couple points. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I'm. And I'm not taking sides on this, but I'll tell you, you know, one thing I've heard that, I, that I'm not discounting is, is, you know, the polls were wrong. There's no doubt about it. The yeah. polls were wrong. Good pollsters got this wrong. But I don't think I think they were wrong on the head to head. I don't necessarily think they were wrong on approval ratings. And and I believe that New Jerseyans think Governor Murphy did well in the handling of covid and. And one of the things we saw at the end is COVID jumped uh, from number one on, on the issue people were concerned about to number three or four. And then suddenly taxes, the issue that's usually number one, yeah. went back to number one. So, so some people think Phil Murphy might have been a, yeah, yeah. I mean, he maybe, maybe, maybe he, he, he was a little bit of a victim of his own success. Now, a lot of Republicans will say that's, that's crazy. No way. But, but maybe Phil Murphy did did well enough in managing a pandemic that voters were no longer voting on the pandemic issue. They returned to voting on pocketbook issues. Interesting. And then, so I have to ask, because it made national news, what happened in South Jersey? Oh, that was, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I, I missed it. Uh, I missed it completely. And, and, and I had Ed Durr who beat the Senate president, the most powerful legislative leader in the country. Mm-hmm. I, I had him on my radio show last week. And, and the first thing I said is, you know, is, is, is Mr. Senator elect, I apologize for ignoring your race. 
and 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 as we, by the way, as as we as we look at the media and what the media can do, maybe one of these things is to sit back and reflect once in a while and say, yeah, I got that wrong. I didn't I didn't cover this race. I didn't, yeah. you know, I didn't I didn't do the job as well as I could have there because I I made assumptions about about its competitiveness that were were improper. But that was that was amazing. And you know what's more amazing, Lisa, is is Joe Biden was underwater by 22 points in South Jersey. And when you look at that district, the the Gloucester, Salem, Western Cumberland, that's suburban Delaware. Joe mm-hmm. Biden was effectively the third U.S. senator from that part of the state for 36 years. Wow. And it was a backlash there. It was a backlash. Steve Sweeney, uh, Steve Sweeney lost in part because of Phil Murphy and in part because of Joe Biden. Oh, that's very interesting. And you know, one of the questions on, on the podcast in the past has been, what do you, what was the story you felt like you missed? I mean, there's one that I think lots of people just never took seriously. Um, and now sort of we, we see now that, that, I mean, it, yeah, interesting. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, Biden for sure. I mean, he's just not that far away from where Sweeney is now. No, so, no, and, and Sweeney held this seat 20 years. Yes. And, and and by the way, important to point out, you know, briefly, it, four years ago, the uh, the state teachers union tried to beat Steve Sweeney. I remember five that. million dollars. That was the most expensive legislative race up until that time in the history of the United States. And Sweeney won it solidly. Mm-hmm. And then four years later, when nobody paid attention, uh, this, you know, a, a truck driver with two thousand dollars beat him by two thousand bucks. <laughs> It is, it is just, it is something to see. Um, and I think that's why it just got so much attention nationally as well because of that. What do you though, because New Jersey, I think has always been a bellwether for the national, um, do you have any, your, I mean, if I didn't say it before, I said it out loud before we, before we got taping, I will say you to me are always the encyclopedia of, of all things political. Cause you're always so thoughtful about positioning, what's happening today in a historical context, which I think we lose sometimes and is really super important because nothing that we're experiencing right now hasn't been seen in the past, perhaps not in the most modern day fashion that we're experiencing it, but there's always a way to sort of point back to what's happened before and draw on that as, you know, something that we can learn from because of that though, what happened in the state in New Jersey is there anything that you're thinking could be a trend that folks should be watching for or looking for as we turn the corner to midterms next year? Yeah, I, uh, there's a few things, but, uh, you know, number one to me now is I, as I analyze election results is, is what we saw in New Jersey is, is were incorrect assumptions on voter turnout. Uh, you know, the, that you know, those of us that have been involved in campaigns, we talk about, you know, the four or four voters and the three or four, the super voters, mm-hmm. the ones who only vote in presidential years. And what we saw this year was what were presidential voters that stuck around for the off year election. And and I don't I don't think that anybody if I were running a campaign in 2022, I would not make assumptions on what the turnout's going to look like. Mm-hmm. I would, 
I would look at, at, at people who voted in 2020 uh, who, who may be more engaged than historically they used to be uh, and, and assume that, that they will be motivated to vote in 2022. And what do you make, you mentioned earlier, and it's something I've talked to in the past, I've talked to Amy Walter about a little bit and, and some of the other folks that really sort of do take a very close look at, at polling and uh, just general data as it relates to elections. That industry alone has been really challenged over the course of the last six, eight years, but really very recently has really been challenged in its ability to collect data. And I don't necessarily think it's uh, reflective of the, the actual work and the information they're getting. I think some of it has to do with the ways we can we connect and collect information from voters in general. Um, but David, do you have a perspective at all? And the answer can be not yet because it's a million dollar question, but how is it that the polling industry is going to figure out how to write this and get more of the information that they need in order to reflect what potentially is and could happen on election day. Yeah. I at least I have no idea. Mm. I have no idea. I know, I know what I hear from pollsters that it's, it's hard to complete uh, interviews. It's hard to get their sample. I, I saw uh, some polling in New Jersey this year uh, where, where, when you look at the fine print and you look how long they were in the field, uh, in one case, I remember it was, it was two weeks. Stockton University was in the field just about two weeks in order to get enough of a sample. And, you know, maybe that's okay in February or March, but, but I'm not sure, uh, as a matter of fact, I shouldn't say I'm not sure. I'm fairly certain that voters draw different conclusions at different points in the month of October of an election year. And, and some of the early data that was collected can't possibly be accurate. And, and I, and I think pollsters are going to have to come to terms with uh, if they can't do the poll, right, they shouldn't do it at all. And, and pollsters, I think polling in general is going to become more of a, of a professional game, and some of some of those that are that are that are a little bit more amateurish or don't have the resources to do a good poll, are going to have to stand down a little bit. Mm. And that's so interesting because I do think that smart journalists like yourself uh, know which pollsters to go to and who to access and who to get information from. Unfortunately, in the past, there have been people that hold themselves out as pollsters that have then been connected to stories that are just downright wrong or not good information. And then of course that informs voters improperly also who, if you are, if you're waking up in the morning, David, uh, as someone who's consuming uh, information every day, is there a, is there a newspaper? Is there a publication? Is there a journalist or a columnist? Is there a must read for you? Yeah, for me, it's Matt Friedman's playbook on Politico. Uh, that's, that to me is the best summary of, of what's going on in New Jersey. That's great to know because I and, do think that he's got uh, yeah. a great perspective and a really smart uh, sense of things uh, in the state as well, which is great because that's also um, Politico has not been in the state, but is it 10 years? Not that long. I mean, compared to how long you've been reporting. So that's a great compliment to the work that they're doing there as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, and of course, you know, I I, I like to say with, with 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 just a little bit of hubris that, that Matt Friedman is is probably one of the best trained reporters uh, that works for a, a different publication. <laughs> Oh, that's good. So, uh, so, all right. So you're reporting and, and you're doing, talk to me a little bit about, uh, as we get closer to the end of our conversation here today, tell me what you're a guy who ordinarily is behind the scenes. You're typing, you're writing, you used to work under a pseudonym. Now you have a radio show, David, what is that like? Uh, uh I mean, you know, uh, just, just completely and totally out of my comfort zone. Uh, <laughs> you know, saying. Thank God it's just radio and not television. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I don't know that I, I'd like to do that, but but you know, the radio is the radio's fun mm-hmm. uh, because I'm I'm reaching uh, I'm reaching real people that are listening to the radio, and then you know, of course, it gets converted into a podcast later on for for the New Jersey Globe readers, the the political insider community. But but you've got to put on a show every week that is. Uh, uh, that is new and different and, and, and appeals to real people. You can't use, can't use private jokes. You can't use insider information right. that, that people won't understand the context. That is great. And I'll tell you the, the other thing that the globe has done in the last couple of years that, that has been phenomenal is, is we have hosted more debates over the last two cycles than than all of the other media organizations in the state combined. And, and that's one of the things that becomes possible through, through the new technologies, through, through Zoom, is that right. uh, I sit at home and I moderate a debate between two candidates that are in their own locations. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is another thing that is really changing about the media is, is when you can, when you can, uh, uh, live stream programming to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and LinkedIn and on your website. Uh, that's a, that's a decent audience. I mean, I've, I've maintained that I reach more people, uh, through those social media platforms than, than public television can reach, mm-hmm. uh, where people aren't necessarily going to that channel. Yep. So, so in 2020, we did, you know, the, 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 uh, four of the, the five top congressional races, we did debates. I had the only U.S. Senate debate that year with Cory Booker and Rick Maida. Uh, this year, the New Jersey Globe, and I'm, I'm really proud of this, Lisa, because as a, a startup media company, uh, we went to the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission and applied for one of the official debates the candidates have to do as a condition of getting public financing, mm-hmm. uh, we had the lieutenant governor debate this year in uh, in a partnership with Ryder University and Project Ready, and uh, and we beat out Gannett and and oh, that's uh, awesome. WCBS TV in, wow. in New York. So so there was it was all part of 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 the idea that that new media is exactly that, and mm-hmm. and even the establishment. Need, you know, would recognize that there was a potentially a bigger viewing audience uh, going to social media. So, so we did we did the lieutenant governor debate this year. That's fantastic. That's so great. Congratulations, and that's a testament to the work Thanks. that you've put in. I mean, uh, and how fun! And the show on on um, WABC uh, is uh, seventy seven has had. I mean, first class guests. I mean, you're having both. 
Republican and Democrat uh, candidates for governor. You're having U.S. Senate candidates. Uh, members and, and a variety of other names that, that people will recognize. And that is just, that's fantastic. And that's hard work. And it's uh, a testament to the well, work you. that you've thank put you. in for sure. Uh, so all, I mean, it was great. The, the, the weekend before the election, uh, it, we had, I had Phil Murphy and Jack Chitterelli, Steve Sweeney and Tom Kane and Steve Kornacki. I mean, it was just, it was just a great lineup for, oh, fun. for a pre-election show. And that makes, and that makes it more fun for you too, because you've really got people who are really going to be able to share information and tell you about what's happening in right. real time. Uh, so my final question always, David, for the podcast is who would you recommend for a future episode? Uh, for, for a future episode, obviously it's Steve Kornacki. Yeah, got it. Steve Kornacki. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you quick, quickly why is, is what we talked about, Lisa, which is as you, as you question the validity of polling as it relates to campaigns, mm-hmm. the one thing that you can't question is, is the analytics of data. Uh, numbers don't ever lie. And, and I think, you know, I think those Steve Kornacki and others who are reporting from a data analytics standpoint, mm-hmm. as opposed to we just did a poll and, and here's what we think voters are thinking. If you if you know if you know what voters have done in the past, that is is all almost always uh, a great indicator of where they're going to go in the future. No question. No question about it. Well, I'll tell him that you sent me. And uh, I think okay. he'll, he may remember me from way back when in those New Jersey days. Uh, David, it was we, a we huge... We also remember you from New Jersey. We remember <laughs> you fondly. Well, thank goodness, because it, it's been 20 years, but it doesn't feel like quite that long. Uh, <laughs> David, it is a huge treat to have had you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll have to do it again soon. That'd be great. Thanks for having me on. And that's today's Friday Reporter Podcast. A podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.